Welcome everyone to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast, a place to come together to meet other passionate Jewish women from around the globe. We here value unity and we come together from different backgrounds, places and stages in life. We focus on what unites us being a Jewish woman. We believe that every woman has a beautiful and unique light to shine to our community and to the world. In these podcast interviews, we find the light in others and we learn from everyone. These are the topics that matter most to you and empower you to be the inspired Jewish woman that you want to be. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another installment of our Inspired Jewish Women Weekly Interview. And today I have a very special guest, Tal Vasali, coming all the way from Italy. That's so cool. And Tal was born in the UK and moved to Israel twice during her school years, and finally making Israel her home. She got married and then moved to Venice, Italy with her husband, Moshe. Tal has made a habit of creating community where there is none, including her not-for-profit online Jewish school serving Europe and Africa. That's amazing. So welcome, Tal. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) So great. You're the first woman that I'm interviewing from Italy, and I love how this all came about, really how we got connected was through this podcast. Right. I think you probably listened to Absolutely. one of our podcasts, maybe I think Andy, who was on right. it probably two months right. ago, connected you. Well, it was, I heard your podcast with your cousin in Africa. And yes, we're connected through it. The great Andy. Oh my goodness. The great yeah. Andy. Yeah, we've had incredible women on this weekly interview. And it's so amazing how my dream, kind of like my heart and my mission to bring Jewish women together from all around the world and to build community. Like right now, we're building an online community. I never thought we would be doing that. I thought it would be more in-person experiences. But it's all about shifting and pivoting, which is really what you're doing right now. So I don't know if you just want to jump in and share some of your story. Just to give a little background, it seems like you started this online school about five years ago, right? So So I will just... It's really about our perception. That's really the biggest barrier is our perception, right? I was the child who grew up in a, you know, in London in a large Jewish community, but I never really felt like I belonged there. It's a very strange phenomenon. I just never really felt it. And I think that has informed my journey that is always searching for, always seeking for like-minded people and for community of some kind. So it tends to run beside me with whatever I do. Even in my work, I help companies find their ideal customers, right? That's building a kind of a community. So the whole idea of building community is one that's like, it's probably inexchangeable with who I am very much. So I understand what you're saying. And actually, when I came to Venice and my children were born and I knew I had no Jewish school to send them to, and I had many, many sleepless nights, and I just, I knew there was a way I just knew there was a way. And I was working as a marketing consultant for some Israeli tech startups. And I said, you know, these guys in tech startups, they can do anything, Mm. right? Literally reinvent, reimagine, whatever you want, they can do. I said, I know there's a way and I know it's simple. Why do I just 
not get it. Like when there's a will, there's a way, and, and it's apparently. So Right when you have right. that desire, that passion to give something to your children, I mean, there's nothing more important than that. And before you even start, tell us a little bit about the Jewish community in Venice, Italy. So the Jewish community in Venice, Italy, is probably about 700 years uninterrupted Jewish presence in Venice. 22 generations in Rome. Right, Rome is one of or the, depending on who you ask oldest uninterrupted Jewish communities in the world. Roman Jews came from Bayat Sheni, and the Jews in Venice came, there were some here before the Spanish Inquisition, but I think the majority of the bigger community sort of arrived in 1492. So Venice has had a long presence here. It's seen some very beautiful years. It's quite a small community now, but I think generally the issue in Italy, and even in Europe, I'm seeing it in lots of other communities, is it's not a very high level of engagement. Communities have become places where you restore the synagogue or you look after the culture. But beyond that, it's not really a place for shmirat Torah mitzvot. It's not really a place of communal activities. So to me, that's an issue because then where do the Jews go, right? You mentioned to me that the Jewish community over there, it feels more like a museum than a community. And I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, there's so much heavy history over there. Right. That the only way to really carry it through and to do, I don't know, any rectification, any tikkun, is to bring vibrant Jewish life back to that place, which is what you're doing, right? I mean, I'm not sure that's what I'm doing, but just know that, I mean, I always say Italy, Jewish Italy has a beautiful Jewish history, but it's strangling the Jews. Hmm. It's heavy right? Um, And we have to remember, it's something I always talk about with the families who are part of the school, is that the future always has to be stronger than the past. So important. So, and it sounds like a very um, eclectic group of Jews that do live there now. And I love that, you know, the way you were describing how there's all types of Jews. You have Israelis. Yeah, we have very few observant families. The majority of the people are from old Venetian families, and they've been here for a long, long time. Well, one of the things I think that's really quite sad here, and the more I discover it, the more sad I feel, is that, you know, most people can, can only remember this. Most people can only remember as far back as their grandparents because that's their living experience. And so the people today can only think that far. Now, the people of that generation were already quite secular. Anyone who knows the history of Jewish Italy in terms of the rabbis and their contributions to Judaism until today, we'll know that this was like the royal family of Europe. I mean, there must have been hundreds of rabbis, tens of thousands of books. I mean, anyone that knows the Ramchal, or who knows Rabbi Ovadiami Bartenura, or who knows Rabbi Chaim Calabrese, right, will understand the impact that they had on the entire Jewish world And because people can only remember as far back as their grandparents, they're not even aware of their massive heritage and the massive royalty that they belong to. To me, that's incredible. Wow. You know, part of our mission at Inspire Jewish Women is to take groups of women to interesting places and give them incredible adventures and, you know, Jewish enriching experiences. So we have been already to Poland and to Israel and to Thailand. 
and we have Morocco in the works, but I'd love to go to Italy. I'd love to go to So I don't know, it could be you'll be leading part of our trip when we... <laughs> I would love that. I'm not sure you can be Jewish without understanding the contribution of Jewish Italy to the Jewish world. Mm. I mean, printed Gemara, the first complete printed Gemara was printed in Venice. That's heritage, even in other places in Europe, right? You've been to Poland. Did you go to see Rav Shapira's uh, Yeshivat Chachmei Lublin? How many tens of thousands? How many hundreds of thousands? Of thousands, right. Right? How many people learn Ramchal? In every yeshiva, people learn Ramchal. Right. So it's really going back to your... Classic text. Understanding where we come from, we could be so much stronger when we really know who we are and where we're coming from. Right. So tell right. just... A few highlights, if we were to go to Italy, you know, with a bus of women, what, what would you think would be like the top three or four spots that we'd have to go to? You have to do Rome, you have to do Venice, you have to do Ferrara, and perhaps Florence. But I would say Rome, Venice, and Ferrara are the top three in terms of, you know, the Jewish history. Would we be going to cemeteries, synagogues? What's left? You know what's really interesting? First of all, I don't know enough about your organization, but you obviously know that Rome is the home of the papal state. And obviously the Vatican and the Jews have had a very intertwined history. And it is possible even without going to, into a church to visit the Vatican, to visit the Vatican museums. And there are guides today who can give you a tour of the Vatican museums from a Jewish perspective. If you go, if you're willing, I mean, you know, I don't count it as a church, but if you go into the Sistine Chapel, the Sistine Chapel is fascinating because it has illustrations of various avot ve'imahot on the ceilings, right? It has Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. It has Adam ve'chava. And there's the drawing of Adam ve'chava, and in the middle of Adam ve'chava, there's not an apple. There's a fig. Where does the concept of the fig come from? It's a medrash. How did Michelangelo know about the fig, right? And it seems that he used to live with a family that had Jewish tutors during the Renaissance. A lot of important families used to have Jewish tutors and they used to give them lessons in Kabbalah. It was a very interesting time. Even Jewishly, it was a very interesting time. And it's just amazing to be able to sort of see how everything is intertwined together. It's very much part of everything, even the Vatican, right? Even the Sistine Chapel, right, can be so Jewish. And Italy is full of secrets like that. Not even secrets, oh. but it's full of things like that. You're surrounded constantly. I constantly feel like Hashem is pecking me on the shoulder saying, look at this, look at that. Wow. Look at and is it, I mean, Actually, another secret. I mean, we've always kind of had this, this possible truth that maybe the Vatican has some of the vessels of the Holy Temple. I mean, has that been confirmed? Is it, it's just, it'll nothing. remain a secret. We really right? know nothing about it. But it is, of course, a legend, and the legend lives on. Yeah. Wow. So, so fabulous. And really, Kolakavod for kind of holding up that part of the world. We're all holding up our little communities. So that's incredible. Right. Right. And it's not simple. It's very complex. I'm really not here in any official capacity. My husband's not the rabbi. I don't have any particular role here. We came to live here because of my husband's work. And we found ourselves in a place where we felt that it's very, very nice to live in service. There's no question about it. Um, it's a very wonderful way to live. I actually, you know, between Hashem pecking me on the shoulder every five minutes and living in service, I actually, you know, in the first years, I yearned to live somewhere else, anywhere, just not here. 
And now that I'm blessed to be able to see the gifts, I don't know if I could leave anywhere else. Wow, that's so beautiful. So, that really means that yeah. you're you're hitting something on the head. Part of your mission, your your soul calling is there. So that's really fabulous. It certainly feels that way. I certainly feel very much in my, you know, I feel like I found my place, which is again very odd, but yet all at the same time very much a home feeling. Wow. Uh, Okay. Well, I know that yeah. you have three children, uh, a 12 year old, a 10 year old, and a four year old, two boys and a girl. I do. And um, they two go to public school, you said, right? They do. There are no. Well, there no, wasn't anything else. No other and options. I'm really not the homeschool mama type. Okay. Well, so that's working well, you said. Yeah. You know, school in Italy is really just about school. Kids are quite particular about maintaining their inner circle. School's not part of your inner circle. You know, schools are public thing that you do and then you come home and that's a whole private thing that you do they have these very very careful definitions so you know they just go to school but it's not like a part of them there is not so much a community aspect especially from middle school it's not so much of a community aspect there it's just about getting educated so that helps is there any anti-semitism that they've experienced i mean they're just such a minority there they are a minority, but again, I have to just mention that my boys go to school with their kippah and their tzitzit, and as an English girl growing up in London who went to a Jewish school in my time, and I'm sure it's worse now, there's no way a kid could go to school with a kippah and tzitzit to public school. <laughs> no way, just no way. So the fact that they can do it here is a comfort of some sort. I do like to be seen as tolerant. Yeah, of course there are comments, but my kids are pretty built. You know, my belief is that education should be a tools-based education. It should serve the children. We no longer need knowledge because we have Google. We really need to know how to navigate the mountains of information that come out. And so my kids are pretty built. I mean, they know when not to throw a punch and they know when to walk away. But beyond like little murmurings of people that wouldn't dare to raise their voices. We haven't really had anything at all. It's not something that's common here. It's not something people don't get attacked in the streets here, thank God. It's reasonably a peaceful place in terms of anti-Semitism. Thank God. Okay, well, five years ago, you started an online school and no one could have ever predicted five years ago that the whole world was going to go online. And we have this Jewish expression that God gives the refua lifnei hamaka, the medicine before the illness. And in a way, the technology that has been put into place over the last couple of years, I mean, I never heard of Zoom before probably a year ago. But in the beginning, it oh was my like, God. who wants to Zoom? Oh my God. Let's meet in person. I used to fly across the, the world to sit with cities and communities and speak to them. Now it's literally, I go on my computer, I click, and I do all these like virtual you know, experiences. So the world has changed so much in the past six months. And you were ready to meet the needs of the Jewish world. And your school has just grown tremendously. And I know that you told me that you're serving over 10 countries now. Jewish children from places like Thailand, Germany, Croatia, Norway, Zambia, Mexico, Italy, right. <laughs> France, South Africa, Nigeria. I mean, I don't know if I'm missing any, but that's incredible. Yeah, no, you did good. You're basically- it's exciting. You know, keeping, you know, in the same time zone, so you're not going to be taking students from America, 
not yet. I mean, I could just imagine no. that this could continue. I'm not. No, 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 no I'm not. <laughs> but for, from all over Africa and Europe to have children coming onto your platform and you're able to bring them the best of the best teachers, educators, programs. I mean, this is incredible. So tell us how this all came about, share a little bit of your story, what you've learned from it, and what really drove you to establish this school to begin with. So I think that um, the idea that you could zoom in a very professional teacher was something that people really didn't understand in the beginning. You know, when I said, oh, you know, it's an online school, and they'd say, oh, online, why would you want to do that? You know, like, much better for the children to have the teacher local. But the facts are these. The facts are that most Jewish communities in Europe today do not have a Jewish school. The facts are that most Jewish communities today may have some sort of a program, but I would correlate it more to an informal activity with some crafts going on, some informal activities, some maybe a little reading or letters, but it's not enough of a formal education that's going to grow with the children. And so I had 10 years to observe my community and, you know, I move around quite a lot. I travel, I see other communities, I know other people. I was trying to figure out what the markers should be, how to build a school, because yeah, sure, I could open my school to America, but let's be honest, America's a very different, very unique culture, has its own opportunities, has its own schooling. Europe really doesn't have so much. So I wanted, obviously, I'm in Europe and I wanted to serve, I wanted to bring something to Europe that they didn't have before. Many schools today and also communities, you know, who's teaching the children? Well, it might be the rabbi and he might be very good with kids and he might not be so good with kids, right? But that's what's available very often is that the education in Jewish communities in Europe is a product of what's available. I didn't want my kids to have what was available. I wanted them to have the best I could do for them in my very limiting circumstances. And I'm hearing it, you know, across Europe because, again, not only in Italy, but in many communities, we have gotten to the point where communities are the protectors of the synagogues, right? And they're the restorers of all the buildings and they're taking care of the culture that, and they're not, you know, I'm seeing it, especially in the uh, support organizations and the foundations that are spending money in Europe. They're saying, ooh, we've built our communities around tourism. We've built it around getting government money. And now with COVID, we don't know what's going to happen to government money and there's no tourism and we have no stakeholders. We have no people. We have no one who's willing to help us out with the things that we need to do because we haven't invested in them. And so I realized that that was one aspect I had to build into the school. And the second aspect was our shul on Rosh Hashanah is full. It's so full, we have to open a second shul. So you get like 400 people that come to shul on Rosh Hashanah, and then they come back from Yom Kippur, and then you never see them again. I was trying to figure out what is it that will connect people to this amazing thing of being Jewish, where they can do it on their own terms. Nobody's dictating to them how they should do it or through what lens they should see it. It should be theirs. They should own it. You go to shul, you look around at all the faces and you see some people can't read. Some people look very, very bored. Some people are struggling through. None of them are having a great time. None of them are really connecting to the experience. None of them are really happy to be there. Some of them are there because my grandfather was in the Holocaust and I feel like it's the right thing to do. But you know, 
what we said before about only having had the experience of grandparents. What happens when these grandparents are not around anymore? What happens when the new experience is this generation? Right. So I knew I had to understand my audience really, really well. I knew I had to understand the children and I had to understand the families and I had to build something that was going to speak to their needs. And their needs, in my opinion, is, you know, how to educate their children, how to support families to take on things in the home that can support the education of the children. So we talk about being a community. This has now turned into this amazing multicultural Jewish community. And so really that's finding, you know, because we don't teach a huge amount of hours, nobody can take on so many extra hours, but providing the children with tools to be able to connect Jewishly, not just when they're little, but at every age. So providing the tools that are going to grow with them. What are those tools? Not just reading and writing, it's also speaking. What happens, I thought to myself, what happens? What are the common denominators between all these families, between all these children? What could be the common denominator? How can we put together the critical mass and take children from 10 countries? Otherwise, we would have to do things in different languages. I don't know if I have to teach us to do all those different languages. I could probably find some because it's online. It's easy enough. But what could be the common denominator that would put all this together? And I realized it was language, language, Hebrew language. If we learned how to speak, we could understand what we were reading and we could connect to text. We might also be able to have a few other experiences beyond our own communities. So, you know, if you go around Europe, you'll hear people say, oh, we're Italian Jews, we're Norwegian Jews, we're French Jews. I say I'm a Jewish Italian, okay? So I was looking for ways to find common denominators, and I arrived at the conclusion that we should be teaching Hebrew at a very young age. We should be giving these children language, which is really, really easy when they're little, and we should be able to connect on that level, and that is going to expand so many of our horizons in a Jewish sense. And that was the basic tool. So we do all our teaching in Hebrew and it's the most amazing thing. I mean, when you have a child who's living in the middle of nowhere with no community and he's in third grade maybe this year and he's speaking Hebrew and I'm thinking it's a miracle, right? You're thinking, if he comes to shul, I'm sure he can't understand everything he's reading, but he can pick out words and themes. Right. And if you meet Israeli and they say Shabbat Shalom, he'll connect. That opens up our world. And we're living in such an interconnected world. Why wouldn't we want to open it Jewishly? I mean, the Europeans like to be more conservative, not so big on the Internet. They're not so big on all that. You know, they're very un-American. They're the opposite of, you know, I think that when brought to them in a way that could really, I could really show how it could benefit them and their lives and their Jewish continuity. I think that's where the conversation began. So this is a Jewish school. It's online. It's in Hebrew, connecting children from 10 countries. We still have not ever had a camp or a Shabbaton. We really wanted to do that this summer, but obviously COVID had other ideas. I think we're probably in Europe not investing enough in the next generation. And so I felt that that was something we could do. You know, Europe is declining. We have extremely high rates of intermarriage. And so literally like, there's a downward slant. Communities are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you know what? Everything's okay and everything's legitimate when you're making a choice. 
if you make a choice that you don't want to be part of the Jewish people, that's a choice. It's legitimate. We're, we're all adults and we're all entitled to make our choices. What happens when you don't have a choice? You don't have anything better. You, don't, you couldn't get them a better education. You couldn't give them better skills. Then it's already a choice anymore. So interesting. That's so true. I mean, ignorance is really what's killing off the Jewish people now. People don't even know that there's something beautiful out there in their back pocket, in their backyard, right? So what you're doing is, ugh, I just see this as such holy work, Tal. And I think it's the ethics of the fathers, pure Keavut, that speaks about in a place where no one is doing a job, you have to do the job, right? And I don't know if you feel that way, if you feel that call to action for your work, but you know, the Hebrew words are bimkom she'ein ish, hishtadel lihiyot ish. Like, you need to be that person. Like, you don't have a choice. And I just see it. Like, no one's doing it around you. You have these children, your own children, and community members, and all the communities, you know, surrounding where you're the part of the world that God has placed you. And in a way, you have no choice but to produce something that could possibly you know, pull Jews along on a Jewish journey that otherwise they may not have the option of having. I mean, it's huge. Do you feel a huge responsibility on your shoulders or? So when I got here, I did feel a huge responsibility and it, it became very heavy for a while. But quite honestly, I grew up in a family where, where there was work to do. You rolled up your sleeves and you just, you know, you did it. That was how I was raised. Kind of part of who I am. It's difficult to get away from it. So obviously... You know, when I started the school, it wasn't a school. It was just like lessons for my kids. And when people said to me, oh, can we join, right? And that's really how it started. But then I realized that slowly the vision was crystallizing. And my deep desire, which I certainly had in the early years that I arrived here, to just contribute somehow to the Jewish people was crystallizing. And, you know, obviously the combination of that is so heady and so exciting. I mean, you know, there isn't anything better than doing that. I mean, I could do that all day. I consider it a tremendous privilege, a tremendous privilege to be able to do this work. So how many students do you have in your school right now? So we're around the 50 mark, I think. We've actually registered a lot of new students. We've doubled this year. We had 25 students last year. I think we probably would have a lot more students. I think the struggle for us is that I, I'm running the school. And we're hoping that this year will be the year that we get some funding and we're able to, you know, operate it more without me. While I love to be involved in the school, I have a very little education background. Like I wasn't a teacher. I didn't come in as a teacher. I've surrounded myself with some of the best educators I could find. So we're really, really lucky in that sense. But some of them are volunteering their time and it would be good to be able to pay them, right? And to know that we are, you know, turning into a real um, organization. I'm trying very hard to get the word out because I really do, I see when I speak to families, they generally, you know, nine times out of 10, they sign up. So I know that it's something that's really interesting. I just think we're not very well known just yet. So tell us about your school. It's called Zehud. And I'd love to hear about that name, how you chose that name and sure. the meaning behind it. And um, tell us how we could look you up. Sure. So I wanted it to be a uniquely European entity. And so I was trying to figure out what I should call the name. And I went into the archives here in Venice. In Venice, in Italy, there are several Jewish dialects, you know, like Yiddish and Ladino. There's also a Jewish Venetian language and a Jewish Roman language. And I believe there are several others as well. And I was looking through the dictionary of the Judeo-Venetiano, the Jewish Venetian dialect. 
And I came across this word, Zehud, with a D. Z-E-H-U-D. And I thought, wow, that to me, that looks like Zehut. Zehut means identity. What was the meaning of the word Zehud with a D? It was the translation of the word Zehut, which means privilege. Wow. And I said to myself, that's the word because being Jewish is a privilege. Oh. That feeling, I want the children, I don't want the children to feel like their heritage is something they have to tolerate. It's something I want them to celebrate. Wow. So the words they hood. And when Rav Johnny Solomon came on board on our staff, he was so amazing. He loved the name and he loved the meaning. And he said to me, you know, I also see Yehud in there. Mm-hmm. Yehud destiny, right? You mentioned it at the beginning of the, of the uh, Yehud, your mission, right? Your sole purpose. Right. So I saw the Yehud, and I also saw the, like, Yehudi, like the root of the word Jew, like hood, right? So I don't know. I wasn't quite sure where the word was coming from, but all of it together, I mean, the privilege, if honestly, if that's the one thing you give to your students, you have done a good job. If they walk away feeling happy, excited, privileged to be a Jew, we talk about privilege, like it's a heavy privilege sometimes. It comes with work. It comes with it's responsibility and a privilege. Yeah. You know, when someone is converting to Judaism, we try to talk them out of it. We say, are you sure you want this on your shoulders? It's, we have a past and God willing, we'll have an amazing future, but it's interesting. It is heavy. It's a commitment. It's a big commitment. And our past is heavy. It really, really is. And you spoke about that in the beginning and in a way that you don't want it to be so heavy. Like let's focus on the future. You know, the, all the trips that I lead to Poland, we always end up in Israel. We do four or five days in Poland. You know, we also show the beauty of what we had before the devastation. We talk about the thousand years of beautiful, rich Jewish history. That was, you know, when right. we walk through the cemetery, even, for example, it's an uplifting experience. You see, like, the largest Jewish cemetery in the world in Warsaw, and every single gravestone, the candlesticks, the charity box, the Kohen with his fingers, like, you know, every single stone tells a story of how vibrant our people once were. And it's, you know, in a way, like I wouldn't think a cemetery could be so uplifting. But when you walk through that space, you realize where we came from. And that only gives you fuel into knowing where we're going in a beautiful, strong, powerful way. And I honestly, I took a few notes while you were speaking. The future has to be stronger than the past. That's the only way that we could get through this. And giving our kids this understanding that they are so blessed, so lucky, so privileged to be a Jew. And what that means is it's huge. It's a a huge gift. Wow. Yeah. So nice. 100%. So if you want to just close with something, well, first of all, how could we find you? So just in case there are people that are listening that may want to connect their children to your incredible program. Oh, wow. I would be very happy to hear from you. The way to do that would be to go to our website. Our website is school.zehood.com. School.zehood.com. And there's a link right on the homepage to set a time to talk to me. I talk to every family when they have questions they want to ask us about how the school works. And I discuss with them what their family needs are and what kind of learning objectives they have for their children. And we try and find ways to partner on their children's education. I know it's not a common conversation, even in many schools today, but that is how we do it. 
Beautiful. That's so nice. I think that is the way for the future. Uh, for me, I think the parting words that I want to make is really that, and I think this is a general, worldly, I mean, I am viewing from quite closely what's going on in the school system in America. I'm seeing parents who want to go to thinking about making Aliyah, who are saying, well, I spent $100,000 on my kids' education, but they don't speak any Hebrew. I want, to chat, I want to leave you by challenging all parents everywhere to try to think about children's education and to participate in it somehow in the sense that I think it was very easy to outsource it to school. And I think that many of you probably live in places where you had great schools and it was easy to do that. But I think COVID has taught us that education is something that should not be outsourced. You need collaborators, you need helpers but it's not something that should be outsourced. It's something that you should very much be in the driving seat of. Something that was remarkable to me was that when we were locked down, the first thing that my children did was build a shul in the house. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm emotional to say it because it was so remarkable. This shul was a perfect shul in every detail. And every week that we took the shul out for Shabbat, because we have a very little house, we couldn't keep it out all the week, they embellished the shul. So the first week it had a little Aaron Kodesh and a little Sefer Torah and a Bima and a women's section and books. And then the following week, the Bima had a lamp. And the week after that, we had coins for giving out for the Aliyot, right? And every week the shul developed in its, wondrous detail and I felt so privileged to be their mother I couldn't believe it I said you know they realized that that's something that's so missing to them I think we've learned during this time that being Jewish is something that comes from home it's something you do at home it's also something you do at shul but shul is not the center of the home and the education and I will just end with a very quick story I happened to go on a business trip two years ago I had to go to China and I was going to a trade show and I bumped into this woman just randomly who she could obviously see that I was covering my hair and she was wearing a shaitel and we stood in line to get on the shuttle to go to the, uh, to the fair. And when we got on the bus, we sat together and she told me uh, the story of her life, right? That happens sometimes. You just meet someone and they just share. I don't know if it was China or being out of home or, I don't know what it was. She was very, and I decided not to say so much. She told me her story. And she told me that they're from a Hasidic family and they live in Brooklyn. She said, she told me that she's much better at the Parnassus side of things. So her husband's in learning and she does the working. And she also told me very painfully that her oldest child was living with a non-Jewish woman. And this was something that was very, very painful for her. And she told me her story. And first of all, I've obviously, I felt very privileged that she was telling me the story. It was obviously very, very personal to her. And I, I just listened. And when we arrived at the trade show, we agreed to meet that night for dinner and we, we separated. And when we met that night, I had spent all day thinking about this idea of how we build identity in our children. What are the things that stay? What are the, the markers for identity? And one of the things that this lady had told me was that her son was extremely smart. He was a real super bright boy. 
and that he'd gone to a very good yeshiva, but they didn't know how to answer his questions. And then I'd said to her, you know, I think when you're different than the average person, you feel very lonely. So, you know, voracious man was not meant to be alone. We're meant to be together. We're meant to be with people. We're meant to be, we're meant to feel connection. He said, he must have been so terribly lonely. She said to me, you don't understand. She said to me, he is living with this woman, but he still puts his tefillin on every day. He still keeps Shabbos. I said to her, well, you know, humans are not meant to be lonely. It was too much, too much lonely. And I stayed in touch with this woman and she eventually told me that the woman decided to convert and they got married and that it's a very beautiful, beautiful story. But it was at a time in my life where I was thinking, how am I going to educate my children in these difficult circumstances? And I said to myself, if that can happen to her family in Brooklyn, in a a Hasidic community, in yeshiva, it really can happen to anyone. So the only message I really want to leave everyone here today, really from my heart, is we should all be thinking about how to implant identity in our children, how to connect them to things how to be connected with them, how to connect in experiences. I think the key is very much in connection. I always say, I know things are going well in my house when my kids get in the shower and they sing shwaiki. They could sing so many things, but actually, no, they're singing shwaiki, right? And I keep telling them, you can't sing that in the shower, right? But uh, poetic justice in my house. School, school can be helpers. School can be wonderful helpers. And if you're lucky to live near a wonderful school, then you're very, very lucky. But the responsibility is ours to make sure that our children have a very clear sense of identity of where they came from and where they're going. Every mother knows how to do that. Wow, Tal. You know, just like that woman was a messenger for you and sharing her story to give you kind of a wake-up call, I feel like you're giving all of us a wake-up call. Like, what is it that we want to impart on our future generation? What is of utmost importance and how can we pass that over? And I also feel like with the time and all the changes in the world, we're realizing that anything is possible nowadays. So it's just incredible. Like there's no more barriers. Like we're so it, lucky. We're so privileged. We live in a time where anything's possible. Anything. Anything. Anything, anything is possible. It's like anything. Judaism without walls. Like you don't need to be in a certain city, in a certain place. I mean, right now, I don't know what's going to be with the fall, like in a couple of weeks right. from now. I called the principal of my son's school. He's going into 11th grade and he goes to school in Los Angeles because I live in a community where we don't have any Jewish high schools. So I have two of my kids traveling to Los Angeles and here we are two weeks before school is starting. And And nobody knows. And he said to me, don't book a ticket yet. We don't know from day to day. It changes five times a day. So just Mm -hmm. still hold tight and we'll let you know it might just be totally online it might be in person we'll let you know it might be an expensive ticket last minute (laughs) you know i've been on zoom for five years and i remember like when lockdown happened like my family in israel they're like oh let's get all the kids on zoom i'm like huh if i would have asked you to get on zoom five years ago you would have said she's nuts she went to venice let her figure it out right (laughs) i say today that hashem has reorganized the world for me any shit I want, anything I want to learn, I can do anything. The world I'm is no so limited by my space. Yeah, well, last Sunday we had a women's virtual retreat, right? It's usually like 60 women sitting together. 
Well, now we had ladies from all over the world, from so many different countries and cities, and no plane ticket necessary. You just right. you've just opened up your possibilities, Amazing. even though you might do retreats, and I hope you do in the future. Always be there now because you just realize how many more people you can get to. I mean, I keep joking with my family. It's like now when you go to weddings, you'll be like, you know, attending, not attending Zoom, right? I think it's always going to be there because I think even yeah. with difficulty, people have realized that, okay, it's not the same, but it's a very nice second best if oh, you can't get there, right? And it's yeah. certainly an experience worth having, even if it's on Zoom. Look how many people have had these wonderful bar mitzvahs or even weddings where unfortunately people haven't been able to move but they've all been able to be happy for them so true. so true it's kind of bringing us back to what's important just being happy for another person's simcha doesn't yeah. you actually have to be there in person right well tal you have left us with so much food for thought over here and i'm just grateful to you for reaching out and for being part of my community right now Oh, I'm very happy to be part of your community. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful I initiative. Love that. I love that after you listened to my cousin speaking from Swaziland, that you reached out and said, you have three kids. Here's my online <laughs> school. I just love that. That showed me that what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do here is actually working. When these you know, sparks and neshamos are connecting from all around the world, I'm just, it's kind of a dream come true. It's a prophecy. I believe that we're ready for better times. And you know, please God, with the coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. And, and right now, we're just collecting all the sparks, all the neshamos, and coming together in you one. You just had no idea that it was going to be Zoom that was going to like super move you to that mission and vision that you had. Never expected that. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person one day soon in hopefully in your part of retreat and if not then then maybe in israel but anyone who wants to reach out to me to talk about anything education i'm always very happy to do that really this is a time where we have to you know it's a wonderful time to redesign our lives even better than it was before and i've Really enjoyed being with you and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Good luck with everything and wishing you a Shana Tova, a sweet new year. Lots of luck and smile. Bye-bye. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. We value that you are a part of our community. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and to learn more about the work that we do at Inspire Jewish Women, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website at www.inspiredjewishwomen.com. Notice that we use the word woman and not woman in plural because Jewish women are most powerful when we bond together and we together can create amazing positive changes in the world. Bye for now. Hope to see you again soon so we could continue this conversation.